Warning, this episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Guru Sang Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this episode is Vinny Cheshelsky. Since the mid-90s, Vinny has been one of the most in-demand session players in Nashville, having well over 5,000 sessions under his belt. He's played all types of music and toured and recorded with the legends of the past and the giants of the future. But what makes Vinny so special is not his blistering high chops, it's his awesome approach to life and his ability to overcome adversity. So pour yourself a big glass, pull up a chair, and let the hang begin. So welcome to this episode of the Trumpet Guru's Hang. I am with Mr. Vinny Chashelsky. What's up, Vinny? <laughs> How you doing, Jose? Man, it's good uh, to see you. <laughs> man, it's good to see you too, man. And I, I appreciate you taking time. I know you're in the middle of a move. Yes, sir. Uh, so, but, but you are a mover and a shaker, so it's nothing, <laughs> nothing, nothing new to you. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, uh, Vinny, you are uh, you are a very, very highly respected uh, player in the Nashville area. Uh, actually, uh, you know, you're just a nationally known, internationally known guy because of all the sessions that you've been on and all the recordings you've been a part of, uh, touring and, and the whole nine yards. But uh, how's the how's the music scene in Nashville? Man, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting. You know, I think the live, obviously the live scene, like everywhere else in the, in the country and in the world for a while, um, has suffered greatly. Um, my last live gig was uh, sometime around the beginning of March, I think. And, uh, and we had a couple more scheduled. And, you know, of course, when this thing first started happening, uh, the COVID-19 thing, we, we just didn't know. We didn't know what to expect. We didn't know what Nash, how Nashville was going to react. And they've been back and forth with the phased in plans. And there for a while, you know, after about two months, they opened up Lower Broadway, which is where hundreds of live musicians play on the nightly basis. You know, it's just seven nights a week. They start music at 12 in the afternoon because of the tourists. That's the big tourist area of town. A lot of guys are employed, employed down there. And, uh, they opened up, the numbers went up, they closed down, they've opened up again. Now they're opening up uh, as of today, which is, um, what is it, the, the 18th of, uh, of August, 2020. They're opening up, but they're only allowing 25 people in each bar. So it's like, how do you make money doing that? I mean, everybody would have to have a $200 bar tab, which is not yeah, out of yeah, question, yeah. you know what I'm saying? But but on a consistent basis, I don't know, you know, so it's, it's rough. Um, I'm not as affected by that. So I can, I, I can be compassionate to those guys, but I can also say, I, you know, my, both my parents are high risk. They don't live here, but they live in Pennsylvania. And I hope that the people in Pennsylvania are thinking the same way I do because they don't want to make them sick. So it's kind of a bummer. The session thing has been really interesting. Um, I do a lot of small section stuff. I'm not doing the big orc sessions, which they do here in Nashville. They're doing some video games and they're doing some movie scores. We do mostly records. We do some movie stuff too, but it's always that kind of 
uh, pop, R&B, rock and roll, jazz, small group stuff. So I have a partner I work with. Um, it's just the two of us most of the time, and we just stack everything up like crazy. Tomorrow we're going in and doing um, another Christmas record um, with three horns, and uh, we're, we're stacking a full big band. And really that's just a budget thing because I would much rather play with a full band and a rhythm section live. But, you know, when you're talking about union scale, even if it's limited pressing, you know, at three, $350 a guy per session times 17, or you could do it with three guys, you know? And, and so, so the, the session thing kind of shut down for about a month, but because of our infrastructure, um, I stay about 15 feet away from my partner, uh, my, my tenor player. He, he also engineers. And uh, we feel safe and we're socially distanced. And uh, I come in and I say, hey, Fred, how you doing? And he says, hey, Barney, how's it going? And, and we get after it. And then, and then we say goodbye. And we, I haven't shook his hand in, in four or five months. Um, so... Sessions are kind of hot and cold. You know, one week we'll do like tomorrow we're doing a record and then Thursday I got another one. And then next week we've got three scheduled so far. But then the week after that, there's nothing on the books right now. So it's, it's really, really super hit or miss, man. Really yeah. hit or miss. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, it's amazing that, um, you know, when you think about the impact that music has uh, on society and, and a lot of people take that for granted that, uh, yeah, the, the way that the arts have been hit, you know, I, I really wonder what things are going to look like next year. And uh... Well, people are con now, even more so than, than six months ago, people are consuming a lot of music. They really are. Because when you're at home and, you know, and you're watching the talking heads on, on, the, on the TV screen, there's only so much of that you can take. You know, my wife and I, Beth, um, hi, Beth. Um, we, we watch the news, but you can only watch it for long enough for me, long enough to get the information that you need. And then you got to turn it off because it's, it's just so much pounding negativity. Uh, and music is an escape for a lot of people. So the demand is there. I think the demand is there. I think we, as the music industry have to figure out a safe way to create the music. And what that means is a lot of what we're doing right here, you know, if you have a song or if I have a song and I, and I want a trumpet on it, I send it to you, you pop it on there. I know a lot of guys that are doing full section stuff, one horn at a time. Trumpet player lays down his, sax player lays down his trumpet. And you know, they're still creating some really great music. It just never, to me, it never feels the same as when you're in the studio feeling the vibe of the other people really enjoying it, getting into the excitement, the, you know, the, the way the music is kind of a roller coaster uh, ride, but the demand is there. We need to figure out how to create it so that we can keep up with the, the demand. I think now more than ever, people are willing to spend a little bit of money to comfort themselves and music definitely does that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even, um, yeah, the, the pivots that businesses have to make, every business has, has, has had to make some level of adjustments, even the ones that, you know, 
we're able to continue on. Like my wife works in healthcare. So, uh, yeah, she's a nurse, frontline kind of person. But, you know, while they weren't particularly shutting down, they have had to adjust some of their uh, the, the structure and, and who goes where and and that sort of stuff. So, you, I mean, you've got that side and then you've got people like, you know, musicians who uh, are relying on uh, public. And you know, like we see that in the sports world, you know, the, the Big Ten, Big Ten and Pac-12 just announced that they're uh, going to ditch the season. Uh, and I know that's going to uh, make your wife very unhappy. Um, she is not, she's not happy. She keeps telling me that every Saturday at noon, uh, we're, she's going to replay the Ohio state Alabama game from the first year of the playoffs where they just whipped our butts and we'll just watch it. It'll be like groundhog day every week yeah. and, that'll make her happy <laughs> and me sad, you know, the sec and, uh, and the ACC have not, they, they're saying they're going to forge forward, man, but I just, I just cannot figure out what that looks like. It's like, uh, you know, part of what I do is, you and I have talked about this before, uh, Pearl Drums. You know Pearl Drums, the big right. uh, drum company? Mm -hmm. They're, you know, one of the top uh, drum manufacturers in the world. Um, they also um, sell a line of front-facing marching instruments from the Adams Company. Mm -hmm. Adams, uh, Adams Custom Brass is now making Adams Marching Brass. And there's several big universities, Cincinnati, Georgia Tech, you know, a bunch of Iowa, a bunch of really big um, universities that are using the instruments. Um, you, you can't write socially distanced drill for marching band or drum and bugle corps or right. any of those activities. And so that, that market is, for right now, it's gone. It's yeah. absolutely flat dead in the water. Um, and, you know, the way sports go is the way the marching band goes. Because if the Big Ten were to do games, they would probably put a 50 or 60 piece socially distanced pep band in the stand somewhere, you know, even though they wouldn't have a big, big crowd. So it's, man, it's a, I wish I was smarter and I could come up with like a, a solution, but uh, man, it's, it's a drag. <laughs> yeah. 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 It absolutely is. Um, now with your, uh, your session work, I mean, you, your resume, your discography, I mean, you've, you've done well over 5,000, probably pushing 6,000 sessions by this point. Uh, you're across the board. I mean, people for the longest time, and I was one of those people, you know, felt like Nashville was only about country music or, uh, then the you know the the contemporary gospel uh, scene became very very uh, big in Nashville, but there's also a lot of pop stuff that's being done down there. So uh, you know you've got to you've got to be able to be really versatile in terms of uh, your stylistic approach to music. So uh, what in terms of of the the way that sessions work in Nashville, um, what do you see as being like the biggest section uh, or the segment of music that's really calling for for the use of horn players like you? Well, it's it's really all over the map. I mean, I've I've said this before when 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 talking about this. When you can you know in the same week go in and do a Leonard Skinner record, um, and then uh, man, it, it's it's so funny. I worked with this girl years ago. Her name is Lynn Marie, uh, Lynn Rink, Lynn Marie Rink. She had a band called Lynn Marie and the Box Hounds, and she was like this. She was considered a polka band of okay. all things, but it was really kind of this hard ska 
rock and roll with like a two beat background. It's hysterical, man. I, I, and it's the musicianship was absolutely off the charts, man. One of the records I did with them, uh, we cut live. So she had drums, bass. I think she had a piano player. She played squeeze box. You know, she played accordion and it was three horns and sitting like spitting distance from me was Vince Gill playing, picking on the guitar and doing a little singing. So it's like, it's so all over the map. So Skinnerd, and then a polka band, which by the way, was nominated two or three years in a row for a Grammy, which is wow. just often overlooked yeah. category of polka. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I say, but uh, you know, hey man, a Grammy is a Grammy, right? And then, yeah. um, and then, and then later that week worked for somebody like uh, Kirk Franklin or Donnie McClurkin or, or one of the old school, you know, Shirley Caesar or, or Rance Allen or one of those things. And, and the, the musical diversity is pretty incredible. So there's a couple different ways they do charts here. I mean, they do sessions here. One is you walk in, you're ready to play at 10 o'clock. They throw a chart on the stand. First time you've seen it, first time you've heard the song and you play it and you have to play it like you've, and I, always, I tell this to musicians all the time, you have to play it like you've been playing it for 20 years and you've been loving it for 20 years. The first time you see it, yeah. uh -huh. it's, it's really an incredible skill set uh, to have, you know? Um, and of course it's the studio. So, you know, we'll read it down and then, but a lot of times, man, on those sessions, we would go 60 or 80 bars through a chart on the first read. And that would be what wound up on the record, mm. you know, 60 or 80 uh, bars out of 150 bars and then somebody would would squeak or squawk mostly this guy right here and uh and and then we would, we would have to stop and kind of go back but it you know it's fascinating and then the other kind of session is is a head chart um so for the for the for the charts you got to be able to read you got to be able to play with a lot of feeling and a lot of soul a lot of interpretation often um one of the one of the arrangers that I work with a lot is Lloyd Berry. Lloyd is kind of the godfather of gospel strings and horns. And, you know, I would, I would look at a piece and the lick was, you know, bee boot up and we would, and I would squeeze into it a little bit and go three doot up. And he would nine times out of 10, he would go, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> but that 10th time he would go, uh, 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 Vinny. Uh, let's play that one straight, you know, so you're kind of, it's kind of a guessing game based on what you know. Mm -hmm. So that skill of having listened to copious amounts of that kind of music, even though you're kind of on the leading edge of creating what's coming out next, mm -hmm. you got to lean on what you know. So, you know, reading, accuracy, pitch, obviously, um, the full range of the horn and being able to play in the full range of the horn from playing a, a you know, a, a high A in one bar and going all the way down to playing that 2D trombone, you know, that kind of thing. Got to be able to uh, get, get around the horn really well. So the other type is the head charts. The head charts is what we're doing more of these days for us because it's convenient and it's less time consuming. Uh, Tyler and I will get, um, get an MP3 with the full rhythm section and the vocals, or we get tracks, you know, and, and we create our own mix. But more often than not, it's the MP3. We load it into Logic 
and we listen to the song. Sit down at 10 o'clock in the morning, we listen to the whole song. We listen to all the vocals, we listen to where the, you know, where the channels are and the bridge and then the, and, and then the choruses and all that and what the ending is. We go all the way back to the beginning and we start creating the parts on the fly. Hmm. Um, what we'll do is we'll do eight bars. We'll do an intro and we'll get a real solid part. And then we'll go in and we'll put a second trumpet part, second tenor part on it. And then sometimes a third trumpet part, a high trumpet part, and then come in and do two flugelhorn passes. So it gets that real thickness. And then Tyler will throw a baritone saxophone on there. Everything is close mic'd. Everything is also room stereo mic'd. So it's just got that gigantic sound. So again, understanding the genre, understanding what the producer and the artist have asked you to do. A lot of the relationships that we have now, um, they trust, they trust us. So they go, just do your thing. And then some guys will put a little keyboard thing down and they'll say, this is what I want to do or follow the guitar here and going into the chorus or whatever the deal is. And so it's, it's really, it's so thrilling every time I get to go into the studio, man, I still drive up in the driveway. I got butterflies in my stomach cause I don't know what's coming. And it's, it, it's, it's absolutely the passion of my life to be able to get in there and be, so you have to have that too. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the most important thing, again, we've talked about this before, but um, the most important thing is to serve the music properly, no matter what situation you're in. We have played on some incredible tracks. I would say 99% of the tracks that we played on are just amazing that somebody could pull this out of their soul, communicate it to the players and record it. And then of course we add to the top of it. There is 1% of them that are kind of stinkers. But it's still the most important thing in that artist and producer's life. So being able to go in and really believe, really believe that this moment that you're in right now recording in the studio is the most important thing that you could be doing um, that day or any other day. And then you chew on it, you, you know, you put it down uh, on, onto tape or onto numbers and and you move on you know it's it's so you have to have that skill too you have to be able to communicate in a very on a very high level with the producer and the artist and then take their vision make it yours and then put it down on tape so there's a it's a it's a wide variety of skill sets <laughs> yeah yeah and like you said you never know what's going to be coming your way so exactly right that's exactly <laughs> right could be whole notes uh come to jesus in whole notes it could also be that when that fly dunked its feet in the ink well and just ran across the page, you know, wow. Yeah, 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 well, that keeps you on your toes, man, for sure. Uh, so in terms of, of your, your playing, the, you know, the, the style that you use, uh, you know, obviously you have to, to vary your style based on the style of, of the music that you're doing, but, uh, you know, the people who have influenced you the most in terms of your approach to the trumpet and, you know, arranging concepts, uh, who would those people be? Uh, Jerry Hay, Gary Grant, uh, Chuck Finley, the Sea Wind Bunch. Um, Chicago is a huge influence. So if you could take and morph that super tightness of Jerry with that sometimes trombone lead of Chicago, I love those 2D lines that they do where, where, uh, where uh, James Pankow is, is, is playing the lead part. Yeah. I, th I think that was a matter of practicality when they first started. And as Lee went on, he started to develop his his 
range a little bit more. But I think in the beginning, you know, he was not a he was not like a high note guy, and so right. James wrote according to that. So they've been a huge influence. Earth, Wind, and Fire. It's really the the really super tight, really really nice crunchy harmonies. Uh, but Jerry for years, man, I mean, you, you listen to some of his stuff and it sounds like if you played it on a piano, you would have to use all 10 fingers, a couple of toes and your nose up here. Yeah. But that guy and that section has made a living on perfectly executed and in tune octaves. If you listen to a lot of the stuff that they play, yeah. just absolutely amazing. But Jerry, Jerry, uh, ap who is an absolute hero of mine, um, it would be the number one influence uh, on me as a as a player and uh, and an arranger for sure. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you can be in the field of uh, studio work or yeah, and especially if you're working in the the genre of like pop music, R and B, and stuff like that, you can't do that kind of music and not list Jerry as being like you know your go to guy because he kind of wrote the book on that. I agree 100%. And now he's uh, eating good food and drinking good wine. And uh, he's, yeah. still, he's still arranging like crazy. And, uh, and man, it's just, it's, 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 it's wonderful to see somebody have such a, an amazing career and still be able to do it kind of when he wants, you know what I mean? He's like, oh, yeah, I'll take that. Or maybe I won't I think I'm yeah. going to France this week. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I know. I know. Uh, hey, but uh, you know, like you're, we're talking about the about Jerry, and you know, you had you had Jerry and Gary and and Chuck Finley, and and uh, you know that that session kind of had its core: Bill Reichenbach on and, or Charlie Loper on trombone. Uh, so it was a very pretty consistent uh, group, and therefore they got a very consistent sound. They knew how each other were going to play. Um, and you said that you have a partner that you work with right now, but there, there are other guys that you've kind of worked with more consistently over the years in Nashville. Who, who are some of the guys that, that. Well, were... um, Roy, Roy Agee is a trombone player. He was, uh, he was in the last iteration of Prince's band with uh, Phil Lasseter. Phil's out in LA and is a prolific uh, gospel and pop uh, player and writer. I mean, he's really a gifted, really a gifted arranger, really a gifted arranger. Uh, Roy, I've I've known probably since he was a freshman in college. I think I've known him for 20 years. He, he's a local product, he's a trombone player, extraordinaire, just absolutely amazing. He's currently touring with uh, Lauren Daigle when they tour. Uh, she's a contemporary Christian artist. And she loves him so much that when they went to Europe and when they were going to go to Australia, she, you know, they couldn't take the whole band. They took a trombone player. They took a pop band with a trombone player as a soloist. That's how prolific this guy is. And it goes from everything from really in your face, the most intense thing, fire coming out of the end of the horn to the most beautiful and incredible ballad that you ever heard in your life. Um, along those lines, Barry Green, um, who is a staple here in Nashville and, and really one of the finest music musicians I've ever worked with, uh, trombone player. Um, as far as trumpet goes, um, if you heard anything from like 1984 through a couple of weeks ago that came out of Nashville, there's a guy named Mike Haynes who uh, played on it. And uh, Mike, again, Tullahoma, local product, uh, one of the best human beings and musicians um, I've ever come across. Just uh, walked into the magic trumpet closet when he was a kid 
and came out playing double C's, but playing them in a way that was that served the music and that was musically uh, uh, relative. Uh, or uh, um, uh, and so the other guy would be, and I've probably done I've done thousands of recordings with Steve Patrick. Steve is a good friend, Patrick Mouthpieces, and a prolific studio guy here in town, and probably the, the most gifted trumpet player I've ever played with. Um, technically, just can play anything. He can play really killer lead, double C's, double D's, super, super uh, prolific on the horn. Put that down, next song, play a piccolo trumpet solo that would, that would bring tears to your eye, and then pick up the E flat and play C trumpet, and then go back to just blazing uh, lead trumpet part. Um, yeah, so you know, I've been really, really lucky. Just a few others, Chris McDonald, prolific arranger. Uh, again, if you saw anything from him, uh, anything from the 80s on, he's, he's probably the arranger on it. He's also a great uh, trombone player. Then there's just Tyler Summers and Mark Douthit and Sam Levine and Doug Moffitt and and uh, good golly, Miss Molly, saxophone player. We're so blessed with so many great saxophone players. And every single one of them knows how to play a short note. This is, is that so, possible? It's, it is. It is. If you come here to Nashville and you say, and, and you play a short note, the next time you play that passage, the saxophone player standing next to you will play it short. I would say 95% of the guys. It's, it's uncanny. And, and then on top of that, all of the guys that I listed are incredible soloists that make you feel something that you didn't feel before you listened to the song. So they have a very keen understanding of what it takes to be transparent in a section. I did a session not uh, years ago with Doug Moffat. And it was a gospel thing, and it was just he and I. And we had a, you know, we had a barrier between us, so I couldn't see him. And he was playing alto. He was playing the alto pass. We played. We did about eight bars, and I stopped. Um, and I, and I kind of leaned forward, and I said, Doug, are you, are you going to play? And he said, I was playing. He was, his sound was so transparent in the section and so perfectly in tune. You know, alto and trumpet. And that can yeah. be a wicked combination as far as pitch and oh, yeah. interpretation. He was so transparent, I didn't even know he was playing. It was staggering. The rest of that session, I, I could barely, I was smiling so much, I could, I could barely play. It was really, and they're all like that, man. It's, it's really, we're blessed with a lot of great musicians. There's a, there's a big handful of musicians that are making they're living almost exclusively in the studio down here, but it's, it's just a big handful. It's not, uh, man in the late sixties and early seventies. If you, if you had a trumpet that was made into a lamp and you took the lamp parts off, you had a gig. <laughs> it was incredible. You know, in the, back in the old days and, and all that. I stuff, missed but, out. I missed out, man. I should have been down there. <laughs> we all should have been down there, man. We all should have. Oh, uh, well, you know, it, You've uh, you've done a, a lot of uh, really inspiring work, uh, particularly for us trumpet geeks. Uh, the uh, recording that you do with the the uh, loud horns that uh, that is one that uh, still to this day you're know, just talking about Steve Patrick. Uh, you know that that you put on and you just go, man, that is just blistering. You know, uh, Steve did a great job on that. Uh, 
in the role of Maynard, but uh, you know, somebody had to hold down that lead book, which is not an easy blow. <laughs> Steve got to play eight bars at a time. Of course, it was high Q flat all the time, and I'm back there blowing my brains out. My eyes about to pop out of my head, and and uh, the only time I uh, the only time I I really got to stand really on his level in that band was uh, the the recording of Birdland. I think it was Birdland. No, it's not Birdland. It's uh, maybe it is. But yeah, it's Birdland. Yeah. And at the end of the at the end of the tune, he and I trade trade fours, and I would always play it for somebody, and I would say, well, you know, who do you think is who? And anybody that knew the two of us could immediately pick out the difference in the sound and the style of it. But man, I'll tell you, that band, Joe Murphy, uh, came up with that idea. He and Steve came up with it. Steve played with Maynard for a while. Um, very early in Steve's career and very late in Maynard's career. Um, and for that couple weeks, I think he might've gone over to Japan. I don't, I don't know what the story is, but for that couple weeks, whatever it was, he assimilated the spirit of Maynard because he did a great job on that record. And, and that band, there's some live YouTube stuff of us playing at a uh, jazz festival. I think it was up in Indiana. Um, and if you can find those, man, it's the band playing live and it sounds like the record. Mm. It really, really does. It was so much of a pleasure to play with that band. And, and that's a great record. And that thing will stand up for a really, really long time. I'm proud of uh, all the work that all of us did on that recording. Yeah, yeah, that that's a great one. And and uh, if you're checking out this podcast and you have not listened to that, you need to find it. Uh, you know, I'm. I'm sure you can find it on streaming services or just uh, buy the CD somewhere. If they still do, they still make CDs. I don't. I don't even know, man. <laughs> yeah, I think they do, and most people use them as coasters after they yeah. load. <laughs> if, they, if they can load them into their, it's funny, man. You mentioned that because I replaced. Can you still see me? I'm. I got I can, a blank yeah. screen. Okay, I, I can I, see. I took. Uh, I did some work on this computer that we're on right now, and I took the optic drive out and did this and put a uh, a, a solid state drive back in man that was that was a lot of work little teeny tiny screws the smallest screws i've ever oh uh, yeah 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 I, I i'm usually uh I'm, I'm the big screw up so i don't i don't work with the little screws <laughs> uh, but speaking of big um you at one time were were a hefty boy i was i was i was uh let's see it would be june of 1999 <clears throat> I had just gotten off the road with a girl named um, um, Winona Judd, a member of the Judds and, 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 you know, flaming red hair. It was a great gig. It was Big Jim, uh, Big Jim Horn and uh, Rock Williams. So it was a three piece, two saxes and trumpet. Uh, we had a big time out there and it was it was one of the best gigs of my life. It was really incredible. Jim, Big Jim and I were working together a ton at the time and Winona was pregnant. So we were on salary for the year based on the number of dates we were doing and we went all the way through and then for the whole summer she had a baby and jim and i worked and good lord man we made so many records and so much money that year so at the end of that june of 9, 1999 i went to the doctor and he looked at me and he said hey vin you're fat and you're gonna die <laughs> i was like dude Seriously, he's like, I'm not kidding. You need to lose 60 pounds quick, and then you need to lose another 40, and you need to keep it off. If you want to see your son graduate from high school, VJ, my son, um, who's 29 now, um, 
he was eight at the time. And, uh, and he said, if you want to see him graduate from high school, man, you, you got to get your stuff together. And that was all it took for me. So I started, I went back out on tour with Lyle Lovett that summer and I lost in 10 weeks, I lost 35 pounds. And then for about a year, I, I was 313 when I started, 313 pounds when I started. For about a year, I did yoga. Uh, and then I started training for a sprint triathlon. And then I, for about eight years, I lifted really heavy and did a bunch of, uh, bunch of cardio in the gym. And I got down to about, I don't know, maybe 230, 235. And then I started bicycling about 10 years ago. And that has helped me drop that. Um, additional 20 pounds. And so now I'm, I'm sitting at about 215 um, and uh, have lost near 100 pounds and kept it off for a really long time. Yeah, it's, it's super important, man. I drink a lot of water. I track all of my food. Every day I've, I've tracked for almost 2,000 days in a row. Um, and I get regular exercise. And I, I just try and be smart about it. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, congratulations, man. Thank you very much. Um, but and, and one of the reasons I wanted to bring that up, I mean, not just the fact that I think that um, for anyone, uh, you know, your health, obviously, it's all you got, man. You know, all the other stuff, you know, that that's just secondary. You, you got to be healthy if you're going to enjoy your life. And, you know, um, but I also know that when you have any level of drastic change in your body, particularly as it relates to weight gain or, or weight gain or weight loss, that, you know, it affects your body structure, it affects your musculature and things like that. Um, how did your weight change affect your playing? And, and if it did, uh, what steps did you take to, you know, find your find your center again? Here's what I was here's what I'm. I did that is different from a lot of people. So it took me years to get to 313 pounds, like a lot of years. When I was in high school, I weighed 190 or 195 pounds. Uh, I wore a size 36 pants. Um, through college and, and through the different gigs and drinking beer and eating a lot of pizza, you know, I, I, I ballooned up and I was uh, late 30s, really. Um, so it took 20 years uh, to gain a hundred pounds, more than a hundred pounds. Mm -hmm. um, I think the problem that a lot of us run into is that you, you, it's so discouraging to start a diet and not lose a hundred pounds in a week. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and anybody that's, that's using their brain realizes that it took a long time to get, and it's going to take a long time to lose. So I was, and this is not a virtue that, that, that I share in any other part of my life, except for maybe trumpet. I was very, very patient. Um, and I did it right. So I did it through, for me, this is what works for me. I did it through diet, proper diet, and exercise. Now, I tried every fad diet. I was low, extremely low carb for three or four years. I mean, net 20 carbs for four years. And I was doing 75 mile bike rides on, z on like 60 grams of carbohydrates a day. Uh, I lived on caffeine a lot. So yeah. I made some mistakes, but basically for me, everything is on the table. If I wanna have a glass of wine or if I wanna drink a beer, which I don't drink a lot of uh, because of some other, some other issues, but if I wanna have a, a shot of tequila, I kind of build that into my day. My wife and I go three times a week and have frozen yogurt we get the no sugar and the no fat added you know what i mean and right. and we just work it into the system and when you can go for a bike ride and burn 
600 to 800 calories an hour, you don't have to do, you don't have to be on the bike that long to be able to afford yourself with a little bit of wiggle room in your, in your diet. You know, Um, I have friends that have lost a hundred pounds or a hundred, hundred pounds or more in a year. And it's really, really affected their chops because in addition to losing fat, they're because they went from 5,000 calories a day to 1,200 calories a day, their body started to cannibalize their, their muscle mass. Right. So they didn't, they didn't have this anymore. They didn't have that anymore. And they didn't have these anymore. So if you lose 10% of this, it's not that big a deal. You have 200 muscles in your face. If you lose 10% of all those little micro muscles, it really makes a huge difference. Plus, you don't have the fat around your chops anymore that kind of pads things. This is the way you've been playing for 20 years. I know guys that have lost an octave off their range um, because they've lost so much muscle mass in losing the weight super quickly. Yeah. So it, it's difficult to tell somebody who is morbidly obese, 313 pounds, hey, man, just try and lose a pound a week. And I'm like, screw that, man. That's going to take two years to lose 100 pounds. Well, you know what? In the grand scheme of things, when you're 40 years old, two years is a blink of an eye. And if you yeah. can be disciplined to lose one. Now, when you first, if you weigh 300 pounds, when you cut out a lot of your carbs and a lot of your junk and you stop drinking beer and you stop eating, you know, macaroni and cheese or pizzas, you know, giant pizzas, you're going to lose weight pretty quickly in that first couple of months. Right. So you might lose 20 or 30 pounds in the first couple of months, but you're going to plateau. If I told a fat person, and I can say that as a formerly fat person, if I told a fat person, you need to lose hundred pounds. If you lose one pound a week, how long will it take you? It's basically two years. It's like a light bulb goes off over their head. It's, it's really incredible. Slow and steady like the tortoise, and the hair wins the race. And because I did it slowly, my trumpet playing has gotten better because my infrastructure has gotten stronger. I carry about 190 pounds of what they call lean body mass. So that's muscle and bones and organs and all that kind of stuff. And at 215, I'm really at well under 20%, really close to 15% body fat, which mm-hmm. If you're not an Olympic athlete, that's, you know, the average American male is, is well into the 20s, you know, right. 21, 22%. So, um, man, it, it's, it's a lot of information. And I would say as a result of this particular podcast, if anybody wants to reach out, I am not a pro, but I sure can tell you what worked for me. And I can talk you down off the ledge a lot of times with regard to, uh, binging and, and water intake and all that kind of stuff. I think the two key things are you have to find a cardio exercise that you love and that you can do until the day that you die when you're 100 years old. That's the first thing. The second thing is you have to drink copious amounts of water. On, on an average day, I'm somewhere between 150 and 220 ounces of water. I drink water constantly. This is 40 ounces, so I'll drink five of these a day. Well, you know, it, you know, water is such a crucial 
component to our not just the nutrition but just just our lives you know the fact that that our body's comprised of so much water and it's the one thing that we just try to avoid like the plague you know? Yeah, I know. people don't like the taste of it and and believe me if you're running into chop problems and you're having a problem in the morning drink yourself a big old 20 ounces of water an hour later you're going to be hydrated the, your chops are going to be nice and you know and, and supple the way they need to be and uh, you're going to be playing better it, it helps with trumpet playing too i i'm i'm a firm believer in that yeah yeah absolutely well thank thanks for sharing that information yes sir so, yeah because it, yeah look that's part of what i'm trying to do with this podcast is you know to introduce people to to people who have uh information have stories to tell who have experiences to share because you know that's the way we learn we learn through experience but it doesn't have to be your experience you know if you if there's something that that you've gone through that you can share with somebody that that prevents them from having to to deal with some of the uh basically the shit that you've had to deal with in your life or i've had to deal with in my life uh you know that's i think that is what we're here on earth for you know we're here to help other people to be better uh through our uh, our achievements and through our mistakes so i agree 100 percent. And, and and let me just add to that if i may and you know i i, I didn't used to talk about this a lot but but i i found that with the different situations that people are faced with some people you know it's addiction to alcohol or or trendy chemicals um, some people, it's their weight. Some people, it's their personality, which they're not going to do much about, which I've suffered from in the past, too. I haven't always been uh, the go-be-awesome guy. Sometimes, uh, sometime in my early uh, life, mostly as I look back on it, because I was morbidly obese, and every time I walked past a mirror, I would be disgusted with myself, and I was so full of self-hate and shame that I put on myself um, I couldn't function around other people. I wasn't a good partner. I wasn't a good friend. I just wasn't a good human being. And, and I feel like I'm on a journey toward being, being much better. But there's something about me. And, and, and if, if anybody wants to just buzz by the old Instagram account, uh, Trumpet Vinny, uh, V-I-N-N-I-E, all one word, and just look at what, I, what we call the blue screens. So if you, if you listen to these blue screens, basically what they are is a little 15 second snippet of whatever we've done in the studio that day. And there's hundreds of them, maybe thousands now. Um, and it gives you an idea of what we're doing in the studio and what I sound like as a trumpet player. So um, when I was 25 years old, uh, one day on a gig with this R&B band that I was with, I sneezed. And I used to hold my sneezes in, you know, I would, I would do that thing. And right on the back of my head right here, I got this, uh, it felt like a shock. Like if you could imagine a big oak tree and if you took a battery terminal a battery and just shocked the bottom of the tree and it went up the tree and went out all of the branches it, felt, it was about the size of a quarter and it was really strange man and i was like golly what was that i sat down and you know people thought i was having a stroke and all kind of different stuff i woke up the next day and it was dead numb absolutely couldn't feel a thing there and i was like golly so i started going to the doctor uh, about three days later, it happened again, only this time when I sneezed, I let the sneeze go. And that nerve came over the top of my head and went down the side of my face. And when I woke up the next day, I couldn't feel anything on the left side of my entire head. Wow. Straight down the middle, everything on the left. Yeah. 
is completely numb. Like when, you know what it feels like when your foot or your leg falls asleep? Yeah. Not the pins and needles, but that dead, you can't even stand up feeling, that's what it feels like. So then uh, it happened again and it went all the way down my body, all the way down to my toes. Um, I found out through going to the doctor that it's, uh, it's called a syrinx or syringeomyelia. It's this long cyst uh, that looks a little bit like a pencil. It's about that long. There are different lengths for different people. Uh, inside of my spinal cord, it's a congenital condition. Um, and so I had an operation when I was 25 years old. They caught up on the back of my neck, took a vertebrae off, and they drained it and they put a, a little teeny tiny um, uh, shunt in it and it it drains and dissipates down my spinal cord. To this day, sitting here in front of you right now, I cannot feel anything on the left side of my body. My hands, my face, my leg. When I got out of the hospital, I couldn't walk because I couldn't tell where I was putting the pressure on my heel and, and I, I just, I couldn't coordinate it. So it took me a little while to learn how to walk. Um, so for me to be able to play trumpet, not feeling half of my face, half of my diaphragm, not being able to feel how I manipulate the first and third uh, valve slides. Um, at this level, um, that, I, that I've been able to achieve through really, really diligent and tenacious practicing is nothing short of a miracle, yeah. in my opinion. The fact that I can ride a bike, now, you know, I'm not going to win the Tour de France. Matter of fact, I'm going to be the guy that's the very <laughs> last guy going up those hills, but I enjoy it so much, and it's, it's saved my life. It's right. saved my health being able to jump on that bike, burn a couple calories. So if I want to have a glass of wine at night, or if I want to have a Twinkie, if I want, you know, I could have a Twinkie. Um, it, I, I, I tell you this, not so you'll feel sorry for me because that would be ridiculous looking at, you know, my life. Um, there's, 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 I just keep waiting for the other shoe to drop. Everything is, everything is awesome. I mean, it's incredible. I got an incredible kids. I got an incredible family. I met a woman that I love more than anything on earth. I've got a incredible and prolific career. I am blessed beyond any measure uh, that you, that you could put to it, but uh, to be able to play and do the things that I, that I can do is, is just miraculous. It really is. I'm very, very thankful. I work really, really hard. And I want to encourage anybody that's running into issues, whether it is morbidly obese or with addiction or some sort of physical malady. You never know what people are walking around with, man. Everybody's got something, right? Everybody's got some. Some people, it's really obvious because it's their personality. And you're like, God, what a jerk. But other people have these incredible underlying things. Um, that bubble to the surface and, and kind of come out their, you know, their mouth or their spirit or whatever the deal is. And so until you've walked a mile uh, or hobbled along a mile, and somebody <laughs> else in my case, or until you've tried to play a double C when you can't feel the left side of your chops, man, just give that person the benefit of the doubt. Let them prove you wrong. Um, always expect the best from everybody. And, and then just let them make their own bed. You know what I mean? And that's what this whole thing has taught me. So 
and, and I'll be done with this in a second, man. I'm, I, I know it's a long story, but I, for 25 years, I've been wondering, because you, you remember Christopher Reeves, Superman? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, he, he snapped his neck, and, and then he was kind of the poster child for uh, spinal cord injury. And, and, mm-hmm. then, and, you know, Nick Bonacani, who was a, a, a Miami Dolphin, his son uh, uh, was a paraplegic, and they started the, the Nick Bonacani Project. And they've been making so much progress with reattaching, basically, your brain to your body. I always thought in the back of my mind for the last – 20, 25 plus years, maybe there's a way they can fix this. You know, what, what if there's a way they can fix this? I was always super scared to go to the doctor because I didn't want to hear the answer one way or right. the other. And so I finally went last year in December. I got a complete physical. I told my doctor about it. He said, man, let's just get you to a neurologist and let's see what's going on. So we set it up. I had an MRI, took a picture of it, and I went in and the guy, you know, it's like, he's like a mini version of me. He's a bald guy. He's a little shorter than I am. He's like, Hey, how you doing? You know, that kind of guy. <laughs> and I, I sat down with him and before I could tell him my story, he looks at me and he, and he tells me what it is. It's a, it's a syrinx and it's a syringeal, whatever it's called. I did a bunch of research on it. And, um, and I said, well, listen, man, I told him the story. I just told you, you know, Christopher Reeves and, and reattaching nerves and all that kind of stuff. And, before I could get the end of the sentence, he looked at me and he said, oh, you're never going to get any of that back. Never. And I was just, I started crying. I mean, I was crestfallen. And I said, dude, do you realize what 25 years of living with this is like and the hope that I had? And you just seriously just chopped me off at the neck. You might as well just, you know, cut off my head. And he said, well, I'm sorry. But I got to be straightforward and honest with you and let you know what you're dealing with. And at that moment, I thought, you know what? He's right. I said, is it, is it ever going to get any worse? And he said, it will never get worse. You'll never get any back and it will never get any worse. And that was like, that was another miraculous moment in my life when I found out exactly what I'm going to be dealing with for the rest of the time that I'm on this planet. And so it turned from this super defeating, like soul crushing answer to one of the best moments of my life because now I got a baseline. Yeah. I yeah. know what to expect for the rest of my life. And so if, if, if you're dealing with them, we just, we, um, Jose just, and I just had a conversation about a kid that's dealing with focal dystonia. If you can get past it, man, um, or you can figure out a way to deal with it, man, just celebrate that and live in that moment and, and be positive about it and pass it on to other people and give them hope too. Because I will tell you, man, I'm, I'm on several Facebook groups that with other people that have this and they, because they have no hope, they're just miserable. They're, they're just miserable. They're fat and they're alcoholics and they're this and that and the other thing because they can't, nobody understands what they're going through. Um, but I'm telling them, look, here's the deal. It sucks. It sucks when you, you, know, you bang your hand on the, on the desk and you can't feel it. You know what I mean? It's just weird. It's so strange. But at least you know what you got and yeah. you can move forward in that direction. Anyway, that's my little yeah. soapbox for today. <laughs> oh, man, that, that's 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 some great stuff. And, you know, I, I didn't realize that about you. And uh, thanks for sharing that story, because 
I think that, you know, if, if there's nothing else that comes out of my entire career on this podcast, I think this is going to be one of those defining things. Oh, good, man. That's awesome. Yeah, because it goes beyond just that condition, right? Yeah. That, that's just, that's the symptom. You know, the underlying problem uh, for, for all of us in one way or another is just, uh, the limiting beliefs that we placed on ourselves. And it'd be very easy for you to have just, you know, put your horn in the case and, and, and that was it. But, you know, not only have you continued to play, but you have continued to play at a high level, at a world-class level. So, you know, if you're out there and you're dealing with some sort of issue, yeah, there is a solution. And the solution is just don't give up. <laughs> just keep that, that is the truth and and here's the other thing man during the pandemic i've seen a lot of guys here's what's going to happen the guy that is most prepared at the end of this the guy that has practiced and been diligent even though there's no end in sight that's the guy that's going to uh it's not a win or lose situation but that's the guy that's going to come out on top because when he gets the call he's ready he doesn't have to go, golly, I got to get my face back together. I've seen so many guys say, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm starting to get my face back together. I'm starting to get my chops. I, I've been off the horn for 10 weeks, and now I'm going to start practicing again. And here's what I got to say to you, every single one of you. If you can feel your whole face and you don't have any physical problems that are keeping you from the trumpet, I'm not a big shame guy at all. I think it's a wasted emotion. But I want you to put yourself in my shoes. Because if you're not taking advantage of this time and making yourself better, shame on you. I want you to make yourself better. I want you to go into that closet, wherever that horn is stored, whatever barriers that you have to break through, and get back on that horn and practice every day. Because if you're sitting at home and you don't have nothing else to do, why are you wasting that time? You know what I mean? Yeah, Instead absolutely. of sitting around worrying about where you're going to get, you know, how you're going to pay your mortgage or whatever the deal is, which are real situations. I, you know, I'm, I'm with you 100%. But instead of sitting around worrying, take it and put it into that trumpet because that energy that you put in, you're going to get back. You're going to get back in spades. And I am a testament. I am a living testament sitting right in front of this camera right now to tell you that what you put in, I was given a thimble full of talent. Thimble full of talent compared to a lot of cats that I know, but I have worked that talent to death and made a career and you can do it too, man. Just yeah. got to get up off your butt, start practicing and, and uh, go be awesome. <laughs> yeah. hey, yo, see, now you got me all inspired, man. So, yes, sir. <laughs> so and, and that's, and actually that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you. It's like, where did the go be awesome come from? Where, where did you uh, come up with that? that yeah, it, this is a, this is a fantastic story. Joe Murphy, the guy that did the loud horns. He also did another band called, and if you can find this record, it's called conversation. He and Jim Williamson, Jim has since passed from cancer just this last year. Uh, the most beautiful, I, I told you this before, Jose, the most beautiful flugelhorn sound I've ever heard in my life came out of Jim Williamson. And it, it didn't matter what horn he was on. There was just something about his chops, excuse me, and his body and, and the way that he approached it. It was the warmest, most buttery, beautiful sound I ever heard in my life. So Joe Murphy was the brainchild behind Conversation and the Loudhorns. He's the assistant um, marching band director at Vanderbilt University. He writes um, a bunch of marching band shows every year, custom shows. Uh, at one point he was doing like 40 
crazy, crazy amount. Like he sits from like the beginning of April through the end of August. He just sits in front of a computer and, and writes, uh, writes the music. It's, it's really amazing. So Joe and I used to be involved with a group here in Nashville called the Music City Legend. And they were a drum corps associates, DCA, all age drum and bugle corps. I was pulled in to rehearse the rehearse the line um, on during the first year. They were just getting ready to go up to Rochester to go to finals, and uh, and I came in and I was just cleaning some stuff, you know. And so I stood in front of them, and and then the next year they hired me as the caption head, and then I eventually became uh, the core director. So Joe was the arranger and took care of the music while I was while I was directing. And one day. Uh, you know, you didn't with DCA. It wasn't you didn't get to play the show, perform the show every night like you do with DCI. Mm -hmm. DCA, you got to do maybe a half a dozen live runs a year. You know, the DCI cores are doing that in a week, um, and so the the it's pay to play and it's all age and anything from 15 up to like 65. I think was our oldest member, and and the core was really was really making a mark and kicking some butt, and we were at our first show in I think 2005 or 2006 and Joe and I would always we played we were we were sideline lizards so I'd play high notes and he would play the tuba and we would you know we would knock everybody out with uh, Joe is just a, a he's a he's an acrobat on the tuba and so we're standing there and, and as the court is marching out onto the field to get into their opening position I'm standing there and I said to one of the guys that was particularly nervous I said Dude, if you trip over the cure for cancer on the 50-yard line, we're going we're gonna to split it amongst everybody in the core. Cool? And in that moment, he kind of realized, you know, we're blowing into tubes for fun. We're not curing cancer, right? And then Joe followed it up with a swat on the tail to one of his friends that was in the core, and he said, go be awesome. And at that moment, it changed my life. It was one of those moments I'll never forget. I can smell the grass. I know exactly where I was. I can see the person that was standing in front of me. His name is Barry, and he was a little baritone player. And when Joe said that, I thought, golly, man. Because basically what it means to me is, first of all, you're not telling anybody what to do. So don't, don't get me wrong when I say, go be awesome. I'm not telling you what to do. Basically, what I'm asking you to do is go and absolutely always give your best effort. And that's, that's what it is in a nutshell. Basically, always do your best, whether it's in a personal relationship, whether it's, in a, you know, whether it's playing your horn, whether it's playing kickball with the kids, whatever the deal is, you know, cleaning the house, always do your best. And sometimes your best is going to be incredible. And sometimes it's going to kind of suck. But it, it gives you a place to start. You know what I mean? And if you're always thinking, walking into the situation, my mother says, uh, do the next right thing. Uh, it's kind of the same thing. But, man, it's, it's really caught on. And a lot, of people, a lot of people really grab onto it. When I get birthday messages on Facebook, almost every single one of them says, you're awesome continue and go be awesome it's just yeah. it's just amazing really and it's just kind of a my very first trumpet teacher man same thing al carroll south florida 1972 
And I came in one day and I was kind of dragging. He said, what's wrong, kid? And I said, I'm just having a bad day. He said, hold on. First of all, you got a trumpet in your hand. And I, you know, I said, yeah. And he said, especially when you have a trumpet in your hand, you never have a bad day. You only have good days and great days. And it, it seems trivial, almost silly, but it's, it's a mindset. And, and if once that clicks, just like go be awesome or do the next right thing, once that clicks, in order to be a positive person, you do not have to have a smile on your face 100% of the time. You don't have to be positive 100% of the time because then you're getting into like, it becomes forced and it's faked. If somebody in your family dies, that sucks. It's hard to be positive about that. Um, all you really need to do is 51% of the time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Now you want that percentage to go up, but if you can get it to 51%, man, you're leading, you can tell anybody you're leading a positive life. They will be able to tell. They'll be able to look at you and say something different about that guy. You know, no matter how bad things suck, he always finds something that's kind of cool. Um, and so get to that 51%. And that's really, that's really what go be awesome means to me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, yeah. that's, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. And speaking of awesome, uh, you had an awesome modification done to your horn by, uh, by our mutual friend, uh, Mr. Mike Del Quadro. I just, uh, uh, I just, uh, I just saw a post from him this morning about some apocalyptic dream. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I would be remiss if I didn't say, um, as a result of my uh, relationship with Pearl and uh, Adams, uh, front-facing marching, Adams marching, um, the guys Meal and uh, and the guys over at Adams invited me to be an Adams custom brass artist, and and this is the uh, A4LT, medium-large. And this horn, I picked it up because it's so much different than what I normally play. And when we're in the studio, um, basically when you're stacking yourself, if you use the exact same gear playing all the same parts, it sounds like Vinny playing four trumpet parts. If you change up the mouthpiece and you change up the horn, it gives you a little bit more of a chance to sound like Vinny and Jose playing in a, in a section. And so um, for years, I've been working on uh, Frankenhorn. So there's a guy around here uh, over in East Tennessee named Cliff Blackburn. Cliff made uh, beautiful and amazing instruments for years and years and years. And now uh, they've been taken over. Uh, they took all the mandrels and they're, they're continuing the line up at Pickett. Who, and those guys are great up there and they're, they're keeping the tradition alive. The bells lead pipes and tuning slides that, that uh, Cliff and Tina down there at uh, Blackburn made are just beyond compare in my opinion. So basically what I did was years ago I collected, uh, I have a 213 Ambron's bell and a 313 and I've been putting them on Bach bodies. So this is a Bach valve cluster Blackburn number 20 lead pipe, large bore tuning slide, and this one is the 313 bell. This is the big dog right here. This is my number one horn. I can use it for absolutely anything. Also, Jason Harrelson added the heavy caps. Yes, they're heavy caps, and they work for me. <laughs> well, it's because um, you got those big guns, man. You can uh, hold up right, the heavy caps. So, so what I did was um, – I've been chasing that number one horn for a number of years. Um, 
and, and I've been trying to recreate it and, and I, I don't know what it is. It's probably a little blob of solder that's on the inside that just makes it feel absolutely perfect for me. But this is my number two and it's the same. It's, a, it's an early Elkhart valve cluster, number 20, large bore. This is a 213 bell. But what I had done was I wanted to sort of experiment around with a bunch of different things uh, with regard to the bell. So I contacted Mike, who I love. Here's the thing about Mike. If he likes you, you know it. And if he doesn't, you know that too. Know it. Yeah. And I love being on that kind of a level playing field with anybody that I'm working with. Because, you know, if I do something to piss you off and you don't tell me, I can't do anything to fix it. And I don't think we're ever going to have that problem with Mike. He's been a joy to work with. I contacted him about six months ago. We put it on the schedule. So this is what I want to do. I want to make this not a tuner bell, tuning bell. I want to make it modular. So Mike, can you see this part up here that I'm pointing to? Yep, yep, got it. And down here, the brace. Mike, through a little bit of trial and error, created this set screw. And you, uh, you loose these. Come down here and do it here. And the workmanship on this is just incredible. This is all custom work. And he just, uh, he was highly communicative. He sent me pictures. He sent me videos. It was like a kid at Christmas. So this is what the, this is the only two contact points are uh, the braces. And what he did was, let me put this down very carefully. What he did was he put a piece of Teflon on this, on this brace. So the bell just kind of cradles in there. It's not bound down by a screw or, or one of those L channels like you'll see. Let me put this somewhere where it's not going to get screwed up. And so basically what he did was he put a bell tail on it that fits into the receiver. And now I have the 213 and I also have a sterling silver eclipse bell um, that I'm trying out on the horn too. Now, here's the really cool thing. <clears throat> the Blackburn plays exactly like it did before. There is no appreciable difference, which I really appreciate because I love the way that bell plays. Um, the Eclipse uh, plays really, really well. I love the sound. Super zippy, man. I mean, it's like a flamethrower. Um, but it plays a little bit sharp. So I couldn't figure it out. I thought, at first I thought it was me, you know, which is really likely. <laughs> um, but what we did was we came up with, because, um, because the bells are different, uh, the bell tail is a different uh, bore size on the Eclipse, we need to add a little bit of bell tail. And um, Mike and I had a really cool conversation about it. He was super chill as was I, and very high level of communication. And he said, all right, well, let's set it up for when you need it. I said, man, I, I love the Blackburn. I'm going to play it for a while. I'm going to play both bells. I want to make sure it's me. I will take pictures of where the tuning slide is. And basically what he's going to do on the Eclipse, he's going to add some length to the bell tail, and that will bring the pitch down. Mm -hmm. And... It's just a remarkable experience. First of all, his work is incredible. So if he was a jackass, you would still go to him because his work <laughs> is so good. 
But the fact, I, I can't wait until this pandemic is under control because uh, Beth and I are going to go out to Vegas and I'm going to, she's going to uh, gamble away the family fortune. Uh, although yeah. she's not much of a gambler, except she didn't hurt me. Um, and I'm going to hang with, uh, I'm going to hang with Mike for a couple of days, pet his dogs and, and, uh, and just sit there and listen to his stories. He's a, he's a great dude. If you need any custom work done, I haven't played the Grizzly or any of the horns yet, but I am afraid to go because I know I'm going to pick it up and I'm going to love it. And then he's going to have another $3,000 of my money. Yeah. yeah well. <laughs> well, when, when you see Del Quadro, uh, one, ask him for some brisket and two, ask him about Minnie and Mickey Mouse in Anaheim. Oh, uh, <laughs> I will. I will. There, there, there's a there's a great story that, that involves a few few people and and uh, yeah, it, it's yeah it, you'll you'll want to hear that one. So. <laughs> I've seen him say, you know, it's it's interesting because he's like, uh, if a, if somebody comes into the in, into the shop and and they want to hang out uh, while I'm working. Uh, you know, I, I think he's a guy that's that's pretty intense and pretty focused on what he's doing. He says, but if you'll come in and tell me stories, you can stay as long as you want. And, and you know, you got to love that, man, because, yeah. I mean, if, if I, <laughs> I got a ton of stories, so I'm likely <laughs> to be there camped out for a week. And, and uh, but, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about meeting him. And, and I would encourage anybody, any trumpet player, man. I mean, there's a lot of really great techs. My local guy here, Chris Roush, um, is the uh, is the pearl guy. He he works on all the flutes, all the flutes that come in from Japan. He he tweaks them and techs them before he sends them out to the store. So and but his brass work is remarkable. I just really thought that Mike lined up as far as a creative mind with me on on this particular conversion. And the cool thing about this is the more bells I find, all I got to do is send the horn back to him and he just modifies the bell. And so I could have a horn with infinite number of bells on it. And it, it, it each one changes the characteristics uh, sound wise so right. much that, you know, you could create a 10 piece trumpet ensemble uh, with just those bells. And then yeah. I, I'm, I'm really excited about that. I think that'd be yeah. cool. Well, I, I love that concept because, uh, you know, like you were saying, when, when you're doing uh, a lot of stacking and uh, yeah, you're you're able to get that that uniqueness of the sound. Uh, yep. Like, you know, my horn, I, the, the trumpet I play has a titanium bell, so it has a very unique yeah. sound. You know, Is it, it a silky? Uh, no, actually, it's a Walburton. Oh, nice. So uh, and yeah, it'll peel your face. Oh, uh, you got to like so, that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, you know, it's, uh, you know, if, if I'm if I'm laying down like a, you know, a third trumpet part or something like that, then it, it's not, it, you know, that's not what it's, that's not what it's built for. That's not so, what it's built for. Yeah. That, yeah. A, that A4LT, man, and it's the medium large. I tried the large bore, the Adams large bore, and it just, when I was 25, I played a large bore Calicchio, 470, gigantic horn, great sounding instrument. I just don't want to work that hard anymore. I, well, it's not that I don't want to work that hard. It's that I can't work that hard <laughs> at 57. You know, I just kind of want to hang. And if I got to play a double C, I don't want to work my tailbone off. I just want to be able to play it man. and get out. Uh, Gary Grant told me a story um, uh, one time. Uh, I, I had the pleasure of going to lunch with him. And, and he, uh, he said uh, he has a mouthpiece that he calls the double scale mouthpiece. 
And, and I'm like, I, I don't understand. He said, well, if I take it out of the box, it's automatically double scale. And of course, Gary, if you know him or know of him, you know, there, there's just not an assuming bone in his body. So exactly. it, it's funny because I think he means it, but you can't really tell if you're <laughs> pulling your leg. So, yeah. so I, of course, after that, um, I, I play uh, Steve Patrick's stuff. As a matter of fact, I, I have one right here that I was trying out. Patrick Mouthpieces, Steve, is doing a really good job of, of creating uh, mouthpieces that make it easier to play the trumpet. And I switch around a ton. I know a lot of people don't do that. But I mean, in, in any given session, I'll play two different flugelhorn mouthpieces on two different flugelhorns, and I'll have three or four B-flats. All of them have a different setup. Some of them, it's a dime with a hole punched in it, and some of them, it's, you know, a one and a half C. And based on where I am in the section, that, that's, that's the one that I use. But he's got a mouthpiece. Steve's got a mouthpiece. I think it's the 94S. And honest to goodness, man, it might as well be a blank. It's just like <laughs> you have to be in such incredible shape to play this mouthpiece. I mean, because there's so much compression and so like so much room for error for me. Like I, if I'm not right on the money, I'll play 15 notes and then eventually get to like whatever it is. So I started calling it my double scale mouthpiece because if I need to play a real easy, if I've been playing for two or three hours and I need to play a double C, I take that thing out of the box, man, pop it in. And second time, it's just pick off right out of the blue. And it's, it's a great piece. Uh, and, and I've jokingly said, as I take it out of the box, this is my Gary Grant double scale mouthpiece. And people go, what does that mean? And I tell them the story that I just told you. And I say, uh, so what do you think? And without fail, they all go, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, if somebody ever does it, man, I'm going to document it. I'm going to like, take a video recording of it. And I'm going to send it to Gary and I'm going to put it all over social media because, but it really does make um, Steve's stuff uh, in combination with the different horns that I have really, really make, uh, my life a lot easier. And I'm, I'm super appreciative of him. You know, it's interesting because he's always had an emphasis on the, on the mouthpiece thing. He, this pandemic has hit a lot of guys really hard and the big orchestra sessions, which is uh, uh, what Steve does a lot of here in town, they're not happening. You can't put 80 people in a room because the flute players don't, can't wear masks and they're blowing right. 15 feet of, of potential lethal germs across the room and so it's it's really slowed things down so he's put he's putting some extra effort into the mouthpieces so anybody that's 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 on the safari uh go to the website patrickmouthpiece.com and 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 just check them out because they're they're super reasonable he's got a guy working for him named chris rhymes chris uh is from boston originally he used to work with trent austin when trent had his shop in boston mm -hmm. and uh he just became a new dad uh, uh, got a little girl and a uh, great trumpet player came down here to go to Belmont University got his masters and uh, and he's a good dude Steve is kind of the creative goofball and Chris is the guy kind of the glue that holds the company together so he takes care of all of the social media all the marketing all of the shipping all the mouthpieces are at his house basically and and uh, it's really brought that company together to be a force uh, in the mouthpiece world. So I, I just encourage anybody to go over there and buy you a mouthpiece. Steve needs the money. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I, I, I'll sell my mouthpieces too. So. <laughs> All right. Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do our little rapid fire round here to, to wind things up for the day. Awesome. Uh, and uh, we'll see how you do with this. Uh, <laughs> questions all over the place. Your shortest answer. I feel like Richard Dawson. A famous <laughs> <laughs> Survey says, OK, here's the first one. Who's the biggest influence on your life that's not a trumpet player? Uh, I would have to say Hank Levy, my college jazz ensemble professor. Mm. Great guy. Great, great writer, man. Towson University and played with, uh, you know, played with Don Ellis and the old man and, and just an incredibly prolific writer. He, uh, he was uh, real into exotic time, uh, time meters. I didn't play in four in college until I was a junior in jazz ensemble. <laughs> How about that? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's kind of like backwards, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, what's your favorite book? Uh, Mike Rowe has a new book right now, and it's, um, I'm not sure the, the title of it. It's a New York bestseller, but it's a, it's a bunch of his podcasts and stories. I love listening to him and reading his stuff, the Mike okay. Rowe's book, yeah. All right, uh, what's the worst movie you've ever seen? Uh <laughs> You know, my wife and I have been watching a bunch of stuff on the Hallmark Channel. Oh. You know, so really, aside from The Good Witch, I would say <laughs> almost any movie I've seen on the Hallmark Channel. Mark I love Channel. Hallmark. I, I love your cards and I love your channel. I'm just not. Yeah. Just the movies. Yeah, yeah, I got you. Um, if you weren't a trumpet player, what would you want to do? I, I would be a chef. Um, when I was nine years old and I started playing the trumpet, that's what I want to be for a couple of years there. And I love to cook. I'm not very good at it. My wife seems to enjoy it, but I think it's mostly because she doesn't have to do it. <laughs> uh, there you go. Yeah. Uh, all right. You could be granted any one superpower. What would you choose? Uh, the ability to, to transport myself anywhere at any time, it, it instantly. Like if I wanted to be at your place and we could do this as a live interview, I could just snap my fingers or press a button on my really cool watch and just poof, I'd be there. Yeah. And I could do more sessions that way too. Exactly. I could, I could schedule a 10 o'clock and play all the way up until like 1.55 and still make a two o'clock session. And so I would have know, to, be able to take my trumpets with me too. So it's just not transporting me. It's anything yeah. that I'm holding. Yeah. And make make sure you have that Gary Grant double scale mouthpiece. Double too. scale my day. I, I never <laughs> leave home without it, man, just in case. I, just think, you know, if you could do 10 sessions a day and get double scale on all of them. Oh, lordy, I'd work one day a week. <laughs> all right. What aspect of trumpet playing do you think is the most overrated? Uh, overrated. High notes. High trumpet playing. I think, uh, I think a lot of times in, in, in certain circumstances, it doesn't serve the music very well. You know, once you put a high note on that, and I'm, sometimes I'll just say, yeah, I will, but. I just don't think it's necessary, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, what aspect of trumpet playing do you think is the most underrated? Multiple, multiple tonguing. I think that's, uh, especially on the commercial side of things. Uh, obviously in the classical world, they're, they're, you know, very, very focused on it, but being able to double tongue, uh, honestly, being able to double tongue a high G proficiently. Um, <clears throat> yeah, man, I think that that is a, a skill that is highly underrated. Uh, most people are just 
struggling to squeak those notes out. But, you know, like there's the story of, I mean, it's either Fattis or it's, or it's Wayne Bergeron or it's somebody. And, and somebody says, man, I, I'm having trouble with this horn. You know, the, the high F on or high G on this horn doesn't just doesn't speak. I'm like, well, let me see it. And they take it and they put their mouthpiece in and they go, And they go, feels okay to me. Hand it back to the guy. <laughs> that, that sounds like a fattest thing. Right that, could be, that could be a fattest thing, but it could, really could be any of those guys. You know? Yeah, any, any, but yeah, yeah, John, John is definitely a character when it comes to stuff like that. Uh, what's your favorite drink? Water. All right. This is this is my my favorite question to ask everyone. Um, you could have a dinner party and invite any three living people. Who would they be? Uh, I I think it would be uh, Barack Obama, and and if we could count him as one, his wife. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, plus one. <laughs> yeah, plus one. Um, Man, I, I would I would really love to sit down with uh, with Jerry Hay and and really be you know instead of fanboying him, just kind of you know, hey Jerry, I've listened to all your stuff. Just listen to a couple things that I've done so that you know that I can play, and then we can talk on a different level. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and then uh, my father, my dad. Okay, cool. Uh, same thing. You're having a dinner party. You're going to invite any three people from history. Um, Clifford Brown, uh, Maynard Ferguson, and Abraham Lincoln. Wow, if you get all six people together, that would be one Shoo! hell of a dinner party. Lordy, have mercy, that'd be cool. Oh, yeah. Okay, uh, what's your favorite quote? Uh, I mean, it has to be Go Be Awesome, because it's a quote from my friend Joe, so... I don't yeah. think you can go wrong there. Yeah, uh, that's that's a good one to have. Uh, what's your greatest fear? Whew, my greatest fear. Well, I, I I say this jokingly sometimes, but this is a reality. I I have a fear that it, almost a lot of times when I go into the studio that they're finally going to figure out that I'm a fraud. <laughs> <laughs> Like, you know, you're going to play and maybe the note's not going to come out at the end of the horn or something like that. I'm so prepared when I leave the house. I mean, I get up at six o'clock for a 10 o'clock session and I play for 90 minutes, sometimes two hours before I leave the house so that my first note out of the end of the horn is as close to what it's supposed to be as possible. So I don't think that's going to happen. But then, you know, the crazy part of your brain kind of, you know. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> I don't know. That's true. All right. You're, you're going to be able to go back in time and uh, give your younger self one piece of advice about uh, music. What would that advice be? Uh, well, basically, it's, it's about music and it's about life. And it's something that I struggled with as a young man. And it's a little blue, so you might have to bleep it out. Don't be a dick. That's, that's just, that's it. If I could only say one thing to my 20-year-old or 17-year-old self, that's what it would be because I struggled with that for, and still do really, I fail on a daily basis, but I struggled with that for a good 20 years coming out of high school, just a lack of direction and, and self-worth and, and that whole nine yards. So yeah, don't be a dick. Okay. <laughs>
Well, this is uh, this show is uh, not rated, so you can say whatever you want. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, and and the final question I want to ask you is, um, what do you want your legacy to be? Uh, my my recordings, my discography. I want my grand, my son, and my grandkids and their kids after them to be able to shoot a Google on my name and go over to all music and, and pick out a song and listen to their, listen to their dad or their grandfather or their great grandfather play. Uh, it's always been really important to me. I think every time I go in the studio, I am creating part of my legacy and I'm hoping um, just like I listened to, you know, all the way through my career, trumpet players and bands and horn sections. I'm hoping that one day, somebody can be influenced in a positive way by some of the stuff that we've, that we've laid down. Well, I can tell you this, man, I already have been influenced by your work, uh, prolific recording, um, inspiring player. And I'm just really thankful for the time today because uh, you are an inspiring human. And I oh, think, man. yeah, at, at the end of it all, that's, that's what it's all about, man. Just, I, just, I agree 100%. And thank you for your kind words. I really appreciate it. Uh, well, and I am looking forward to uh, my ability to get down there to Nashville at some point and, uh, and Wait, get a hot... Take a dip in the new pool. Yeah, dip in the new pool, have a hot chicken sandwich. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, there we go. Right on, and, yeah. All right. So uh, thank you very much, Vinny. And uh, for those of you who joined us on this podcast, thank you very much for listening and uh, your support. And we've got plenty more episodes coming up. So until next time, peace and slide grease. We are out. Hey, thank you so much for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating connection through our mutual love for the trumpet life. I hope that you learned a few things about today's guest and had some laughs along the way. Don't forget to give us a review. We love those five-star ratings. And please share this podcast with your friends. We want to see our hang grow for show. Have a suggestion for a future topic or a guest? Hit me up at thetrumpetgurus at gmail.com. Our opening theme was written and performed by Lexi Signor, and all other music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. So in the words of W.C. Handy, life is like a trumpet. If you don't put anything into it, you don't get anything out. So go out there and let your trumpet sound, and I'll see you at the next hang. <laughs>